This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. More countries in Europe easing the COVID restrictions. Several U.S. cities and states that have tough precautions in place are gradually lifting them. San Francisco even loosening its indoor mask requirements. Uh, We're not doing that here where we are. When should restrictions be eased? Doctors want everyone now to wear N95 and KN95 masks out with the old cloth and thinner surgical masks. But there are lots of questions on how to wear them, for how long, and if they can be reused. So we will try to answer some of those questions. We've talked about the sub-variant of Omicron, the little brother BA2. It's here in the U.S. This is the start of something more ominous. And remember back to the early days of the pandemic, everybody was buying up all the alcohol. Sales were great. Uh, But now some of the alcohol makers, they're running out of supply. We start with COVID restrictions, which should stay and which should go. Dr. Sabrina Asumu is an infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center, professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Doctor, we know uh, we're going to need off-ramps, you know, from COVID precautions at some point. The Omicron wave is crested in, in most places. So if not now, when? Yeah, no, thank you for having me on. So I, you know, the way that I think about this is, you know, what are the metrics that we should be using to decide when we should be um, peeling off some of those public health measures? So number one, looking at cases, how much COVID do we have in the community? Um, Looking at hospital capacity, you know, because remember, I remember in 2020, the big mantra was flattening the curve because we did not want to overwhelm our healthcare system. How's the healthcare system doing? So not just looking at like places like LA and San Francisco. So number one, San Francisco, for the latest numbers that I found was um, 146 cases per 100,000 people. So what does that mean? Um, What is the goal that we usually have? Um, The CDC says that anytime you have greater than 50 cases per 100,000, that's too much COVID in the community. So San Francisco currently has 146 per 100,000. That's telling me that there's a lot of COVID in the community, but we need to take that into context with like what's going on with hospitalization and deaths. So let's look at LA. The metric that they actually provide is slightly different that I was able to find is the daily, the seven day, day daily case positivity rate. So for that one, the latest one that I saw was 15%. So what does that mean? Usually when there's like more than 5% of COVID in the community, that means there's a lot of COVID going on. So I would say that there's still a lot of COVID in the community. You know, you want to take that again. You want to see what's going on with hospitalization and deaths. But um, I would um, I would agree that at, at this current time, I would probably not start peeling off those measures uh, at this time, just seeing what we're seeing with with cases. Um, hospitalization yeah, I, I, actually yeah, I was going to I was going to say, doctor, that that because that, the numbers just even for San Francisco, I mean, like you were saying, their numbers per 100,000 is still pretty high, even if hospitalizations are going down. Uh, so if I'm catching what you're saying, uh, I, I think you're saying that even San Francisco is being a little premature. Yeah, I would have probably waited to see, to get a little more data. I mean, San Francisco, so I live in Boston and San Francisco has been actually one of the models for the country in terms of 
just the remarkable response that they've had with COVID-19 and really keeping their cases low, even comparing the cases to what we've ever seen. I mean, we got hit really hard early on the pandemic. So they've done a really good job. And even if you look at November, they were actually either at or lower than 10 cases per 100,000. So, you know, they've really been able to do a remarkable job. I just think that right now there's just a lot of COVID, especially with such a transmissible, transmissible um, variant. I would be probably a little more cautious. What about the idea that they're doing it in these cohorts, right? So if it's all of you work in the indoor business and you all know you're vaccinated, then yes, you can lose your masks because then you know your group, right? But if it's not yet for restaurants and, and, and bars and stuff like that, although you're eating and drinking, so we know masks are off, but retail stores, you still got to wear them, but it's your office, you don't. Yeah, you know, you have to take into account that, you know, we've been doing this for such a long time, right? people are tired and we want to see progress. So I think that the that what San Francisco is doing is sort of showing us that there's a lot at the end of the tunnel. Let's, you know, if we think that this is safe, especially they've had such a high vaccination rate that like they, they're able to do these things um, to sort of make people feel better and also show that we're making progress. So I think that that's a way that they're trying to achieve this. So, um, so yeah. Dr. Sabrina Asumu, infectious disease physician, Boston Medical Center. Since the ultra-contagious Omicron took over as the dominant variant this winter, doctors and public health officials have been encouraging people to ditch their cloth masks and wear N95s and KN95 masks. They say the masks offer much better protection, but there are lots of questions about uh, how to best use them and maybe even reuse them. With us is Richard Flagan, professor of chemical engineering and environmental science and engineering at Caltech. He specializes in the spread of aerosols. Uh, Richard, why do I get the feeling that with the flood of N95 masks becoming available to most Americans, those masks will be, I don't know, like reused a, a lot? A lot of people have been wearing masks for a long time, and uh, I don't, I don't think they've been given any any basis for thinking that. The masks are originally designed for single use in an occupational setting. Right. So the guidelines we have are for the healthcare workers, right? So let's take that one and then let's apply it maybe to the rest of us. So if I'm working at the hospital and I put on my N95 and that's for the day, that's my mask for the day. But if I'm just using it to go to like the grocery store, you know, real life application, so it's on and off, or I wear it at work sometimes when I go see other people, but not in my office, um, what do I do as like a normal person? Do I try and just add it up? And time-wise, and then I get to a day and I switch it out? Or can you make it last a few days, the week? What do you think? Uh, the numbers that I've seen and the numbers that are consistent with measurements that have been made by one of my postdocs suggest that on the order of 40 hours would be an absolute upper bound on the use of any one mask. So what happens, though? I mean, because I can kind of see people thinking, well, you know, I've used it for two, three, four, five days. Looks good. You know, it's not crumpled and I take good care of it. Uh, you know, it's not like something in the refrigerator that goes bad or does it? Well, as you wear the mask, you're exhaling into it all the time and you're exhaling particles into it. And when you inhale, you're inhaling and particles are being stopped by it it gradually accumulates particles. Those particles will have two effects. 
One is they make the mask less effective at filtration. The other is they make it harder to breathe through the mask. By the time you get out to something on the order of 40 hours, the pressure drop through the mask has increased dramatically. And that's going to make it harder for you to breathe. So it's going to make it less comfortable. Okay. So we don't like either of those things. So we go for the 40 hours or less. What do we do with them at home? People are always talking about, oh, well, I put them in brown bags because I heard that I was supposed to do that. Can't we just hang them on a door handle and and that's going to be fine? I use a coat rack at home. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, can they be cleaned? Uh, and, And how do you clean them? Unfortunately, these masks are made of very special materials. And if you clean them, you destroy the special properties of the fibers that do the hard work in the mask and make them much less effective. Okay, so no to the cleaning. Um, realistically, for most people, unless we're really you know tracking and going up against the, the wearing it too long, are we going to be the downfall of our mask because we do keep crumpling it up or the straps go bad or we're shoving it in our pocket? Like if it physically changes to your eyes, then maybe that's also a clue that you should switch it out? If it physically changes to your eyes, that's one thing. If the strap breaks, it's gone. It, it's not no longer usable. If the stra- strap stretches so much that it's no longer holding it tight to your face, it's no longer as useful. It's no longer as protective for you or for those around you. Do people have to be overly concerned about, you know, we keep hearing about counterfe- counterfeit uh, uh, 95s and counterfeit uh, KN95s. I mean, so long as you get something that you, you know, you, you order it online and it fits on your face and it's pretty tight uh, and you're only using it one time, does it really make a difference if it's, I don't know, counterfeit or not? It makes a huge difference. Okay, why? Because so, some of the masks, the, the modern mask is made with material that has a charge embedded in it. That's what has made the N95 possible. That charge embedded in it increases the collection of particles from the air that that is passing through the mask. Some of the masks that we have tested that look the same as others, where, where we've seen it most has been in the surgical style masks. Um, but that's from a relatively small sample. Some of the masks don't have that character at all. They look the same outside, but you can't tell. The only way you can tell is doing detailed measurements that require expensive equipment. Or figure out that you're buying from like a super reputable source and then you're fine. If you're buying from a super reputable source, you should be fine. Richard Flagan, professor of chemical engineering, environmental science, engineering at uh, Caltech, specializes in aerosols. Yeah, so don't wash those masks. No. Short break, and then just as it seems we're putting Omicron in the rearview mirror, along comes the annoying little brother. So how seriously should we take this sub-variant? L.A. County Public Health says four cases of that Omicron subvariant, BA2, found here. Now it's waiting 
for answers from researchers about whether it could potentially lead to yet another surge. So if it's here, there's a chance it's in other parts of the West. Several hundred infections uh, spread across the UK and Europe have already been linked to this so-called uh, stealth variant. So how worried should we be? Brian Labus is an epidemiologist and professor at uh, UNLV's School of Public Health. Um, so I guess the appearance of a new variant, even this subvariant, was to be expected. We see mutations all the time, and so this is the the natural progression of any virus when it reaches into a population. We see changes, and those new lineages, those new variants start to spread in a population. But of course, people are now going to start thinking, well, okay, so we, we're getting over, it appears anyway, uh, Omicron, now we're going to have to deal with Omicron BA2, then there's going to be Omicron BA3, and on and on and on. Are they right? Well, it's entirely possible that we're going to see new variants showing up all the time. The question is, does it actually mean anything when those variants occur? We see changes happening on the order of about two mutations per month with coronaviruses, but most of those don't lead to any increased transmission or any change in the disease. So it really comes down to if this actually is relevant in the human population. All we know is that we have new viruses popping up all the time. We have to wait and see if it means anything. Does this one seem relevant yet? People get worried when they see like the, the headlines from Denmark or whatever, and they're saying, oh, it's most of our country here, but then we have all these other countries on the planet just dealing with the regular Omicron and, and not too concerned about this one. They're saying, you know what? It's uh, different, but it's pretty similar and um, cases are still falling. So. And that's what we're looking at right now. We have a slight variant of Omicron. It's it's different than Delta. And I think that's the big difference is these are very too closely related viruses that are very different than Delta. So no matter which one's spreading, it's going to be a concern for our population. But is that difference really enough to matter all that much? We're seeing it in some parts of the world, but how it spreads in the population is something we're still trying to understand. And it's hard to say that it's really anything to get excited over until we actually see it spreading and doing something different than Omicron. So is this yet another reason why, uh, I know we had uh, Dr. Fauci on last week on the show when he was talking about how they're they're trying desperately to, to come up with a, a sort of pan coronavirus vaccine, something that will cover any potential variant. Uh, but is that even really a realistic road to go down for something in the near future? Well, we have to look at the areas of the virus that don't change. And if we can target those, that's where we're, our, our vaccine would actually work. So we know that mutations can happen, but if we can come up with something that can handle those mutations, we're going to be better off. So that's why it's it's heading in that direction. It's something we want to do with a lot of viruses for a long time, uh, like our flu vaccine. A universal flu vaccine has been something we've wanted for decades. With the new technology have, we have with mRNA vaccines, it's something that we have a better chance of producing and is going to protect us against whatever's spreading now and whatever could spread in the future. Until then, things to watch are what? How much immunity Omicron can give people? And if it gives, you know, cross immunity, because people who had Delta were able to get Omicron. Are we sure that, you know, one way or the other, if you had Omicron, it doesn't mean that you could or could not catch the next one, whatever it is? Well, we don't know. And that's really the challenge here is trying to explain to people that the vaccine does give you protection in general against these viruses. Um, some people still get infected, though, with the vaccine. The big difference we've noticed, though, is that vaccinated people, no matter what strain they are infected with, tend to have a much less serious disease. They, they have lower rates of hospitalization. They're less likely to die. And so even if the vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting sick, it turns it into a mild illness that you're going to survive. I'm just curious, since you're an epidemiologist, how 
surprised, or maybe you're not surprised, are you, about the the entire way this uh, pandemic has unfolded for now going on on three years? Are you surprised by this particular virus, the way it transmits, the way it causes disease, the way it affects different kinds of uh, different parts of the body? Uh, unfortunately, no. A lot of this is to be expected with with a virus like this. Early on, it was hard to predict where it was going to go, but as soon as we saw it starting to spread in the population, it was pretty clear this wasn't going to be just a mild illness that went away quickly. It also changes enough that it's challenging for our immune systems and our vaccines to keep up with it. It's something that there's a, a new threat kind of all the time, so it's not just like dealing with one individual virus, we have new viruses. The one that's circulating now, Omicron, is very, very different than the initial ones that circulated two years ago in terms of the ability to spread. And so that poses all sorts of new challenges, but we expect that. We're gonna keep seeing new variants pop up and we're gonna see those new challenges and we're gonna have the challenge of the immune system basically over time losing some of its uh, protective ability against these viruses. So the antibodies are gonna fade, right? But your body should still remember at least most of this with, with the other segments of the immune system that we have. That's also one of the hopes because we, you know, some people may want the shot every year or maybe that'll be recommended, but there's also the school of thought that, uh, you know, unless this thing changes, too much. Maybe the third dose is good for a couple years or a few years. Well, it would be nice if these these doses could last for a long time. But unfortunately, with what we know about coronaviruses, that just hasn't been the case. Typically with uh, coronaviruses, you lose your immunity rather quickly. That's why we get common colds all the time, the types of normal infections that are caused by coronaviruses. And that's just a challenge with these. So uh, it wouldn't be surprising to me to hear that it's going to be an annual shot and we get our, just like a flu shot, we get our annual COVID shot because of that loss of immunity over time. Now you're not left completely unprotected, but we wanna give you the best chance possible for fighting off the virus and having mild symptoms. So that's why you would continue to get uh, booster doses of this. Well, but let me up the ante because there are already people who are only half joking when they say, oh, we're going to end up having to get a, a booster like every six months. Is that even possible? Um, ah, you're hesitating. <laughs> does that does that mean it is? Maybe we lost the... Maybe we lost the... <laughs> there it is. Oh, no, there you are. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, were, uh, we weren't sure if you were thinking. Like, did we, it, was yeah, we he didn't... thinking or did the phone die? <laughs> yeah, we didn't know. Uh, you were thinking. Uh, so, okay. so it's, it's, something, it's something potentially we can do on paper, but to do in practice is very, very difficult. Just giving out um, enough doses to our population. That was the phone. Yeah, that was the phone. Oh, wait, okay. You're, you're, what we're hearing is that yeah, you're coming in and out. So yeah, either yeah. you're a deep thinker <laughs> or your phone connection. I think the is gist going. of it is yeah, maybe, but it's probably yeah. not practical, and right. they might not even be able to pull I think it that's off what he's getting with at. all of that stuff. Yeah, we'll fill and uh, call us back if we're totally wrong. Um, <laughs> Brian Lavis, epidemiologist, professor in UNLV's School of Public Health. People stuck at home in the early days of the pandemic during lockdowns didn't have much to do, so they bought beer, wine, liquor, lots of it. Lockdowns made for some impressive sales and profits for alcohol makers. Now some of the manufacturers are struggling to meet demand. One of the largest uh, spirits makers, Diageo, which produces Crown Royal whiskey and Don Julio tequila, they're running low. John Moro Marco is an alcohol industry analyst and managing partner at the consultancy BW166. John, uh, how much of the problem uh, is there? Should people start closely guarding their alcohol supplies? To be honest with you, it varies and for several reasons. And some people are short on product because of higher demand. Um, but other people are short on 
say bottling supplies, so that's delaying things. And then other people uh, with supply chain constraints and for import products, you know, just delays on um, shipping across the oceans. That's a delaying product, even though the product may be there, it can't get to the marketplace. So here we are again with another one of these stories where no matter which sector you prove, it's kind yeah. of a mess right? still. And I guess a lot of people probably also bought a lot over the holidays because that's what we did. And then maybe some of these guys can't restock some of their stuff that got bought up. Yeah. And, you know, and, and you, you know, you mentioned Don Julio of tequila with uh, Diageo and tequila is one of the hottest growing products. And, you know, so there's delays and you have a long-term product that you, you can take five, six, seven years to produce. And it's hard to actually predict, you know, five, six, seven years ago, what the demand is going to be today. And that's also another issue with uh, the beverage alcohol business. It's hard to predict we'd be drinking so much during the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> It was hard to predict we'd have a pandemic. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, what, what about prices, though? I mean, you know, everything is going up in price. What about, what about booze? Booze has gone up somewhat. But if you actually look at the consumer price index for beer, wine, and spirits, it hasn't gone up near as much as certain other products, especially... Um, fresh produce, fresh meat, et cetera. But it, uh, most suppliers are re-looking at their cost base because they are being, they're in, incurring higher costs to produce or for shipping. And they're looking at how they can pass those through the supply chain. Yeah, do we expect a rise soon if this continues? I think you're gonna see some rise. The interesting thing with the beverage alcohol category is it's a very fragmented category. So, for major brands that people really want to buy that brand, you may see, you know, some price increases, but other places where people are willing to shop around, you may be able to find an alternative product at the price you used to pay. And, and does it also depend, I, I would imagine, I think you were kind of suggesting that earlier, it depends where in the country, maybe even where in the world you are? Absolutely, because the other thing that you contend with, especially if you're in other countries, is currency and how is, uh, you know, the strength or weakness of the U.S. dollar impacting the price you can sell it for in that other country to ship to the U.S.? Tell me about the uh, glass shortage. So some of these places, they have the alcohol to ship out, but they don't have any bottles to put it in? And that varies by manufacturer. Some producers have got ahead of things when they saw certain trends developing even a year ago, and so they ordered glass in advance. Other people kind of kept to their same ordering patterns and they're finding it's taking longer to get glass. And especially for people, U.S. producers that use imported glass, um, you know, that supply chain is taking longer. So it's a mixed bag. Some people are having delays. Others are fine because they made plans a year ago. Is the pandemic then going to lead to some sort of lasting change in the way the industry produces and, and, and distributes its products, do you think? I think there will be some lasting changes. Uh, you know, we talk just in time inventory and, you know, only having things come in just as you need it. I think most producers are going to look at um, ordering and receiving packaging supplies and things earlier so they don't have these problems. I also think, just like other industries, you know, some people that have gone offshore for certain packaging supplies, they may go, go back to onshoring those packaging supplies. But those things don't happen overnight. But over the next three to four years, you actually may see more packaging supplies being procured from uh, domestic producers rather than overseas producers. John Mora Marco, alcohol industry analyst, managing partner, the consultancy BW166. Look what we've come to. Oh, my God.
Now I'm worried. <laughs> now you're worried. Now, after two years, now you're worried. Okay. Well, this is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.